Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am joined this week by none other than the sports betting guru, Dan Wallach. How goes it, Dan? Oh, it's going well, Dan. I guess I've been benched. You're leading off the podcast, and I think it's about time I've been grooming you for this uh, eventual uh, transition. Honestly, uh, this is your story, the Super League, and I think I think fresh off the heels or coming off the heels of our one of our most successful podcasts, uh, lead us into this week's episode, but we do have late-breaking news that we're going to cover also. Why don't you tell us uh, or set the stage for what we're going to be covering today? Well, then not so fast, my friend. I mean, listen, this was the assumption of the risk when you moved to Siberia and we're 12 hours apart. We had a breaking story at 2 p.m. Eastern. I mean, I, the podcast has got, a, got an emergency episode. we got to roll. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I think as I told you off, Mike, this is probably the most ill-timed podcast recording that we've back ever back. done. Back to back. We've got two, two emergency podcasts. Yeah, but it's good. You know, listen, you and I talk all the time. So I'll just pretend this isn't a podcast that you and I just like shooting, you know, shooting the bull on the phone and we're just talking about stuff. So uh, I think we have a lot to cover and it doesn't have to be traditionally set out. I think the stories speak for themselves and we'll try to enlighten the audience on what's in play. And and I think Florida is going to be a real big story over the next couple of weeks with sports betting. But take it away, Dan. Okay, so it's, we're going to keep this pretty tight today. Uh, we obviously had the emergency episode on Monday, which uh, you know, Dan's alluding to the Super League Symposium came together very quickly. But uh, yeah, that was a double episode. So you have your, your more, more than your normal dose of conic detrimental this week. That said, there's been a lot that's transpired, if you can believe it, since Monday on the Super League, which is this very big announcement. And now, you know, almost can put a fork in it. So we'll get into scouring the ashes of the Super League. And then uh, number two, as Dan is alluding to, there is some big developments on the sports betting front in Florida. Um, Even if you are not from Florida, sports betting is probably coming to a state near you in the near future with all all the pandemic issues. Sports betting has been popping up in any number of states. So Dan uh, is a sports betting guru. We're going to spotlight what's going on in Florida. But again, these these are all relevant issues, especially if you are a degenerate gambler, like one of the two Dans on this podcast. Last but not least, Deshaun Watson, we did not cover it in our last episode. But the biggest story uh, in domestic sports, so we've got to cover that. You know, that said, this is the, the, the uh, Super League recap episode. So I'm to have some fun here. Um, so anyway, let me, let me uh, kind of explain what, what's transpired since our last episode of Monday. Unless you're living under a rock, which I assume that you are not because you are listening to this podcast, and I don't think there is good Wi-Fi underneath rocks, there, there was a very big, uh, we'll say like an explosion. The Super League burst onto the scene Saturday, Sunday, Monday, the, you know, if you listen to the last episode, 12 of the biggest clubs in football, six from England and then six between Italy and uh, Spain, they got together and they said, we're creating a Super League. So I don't know if anyone expected this level of backlash, but fans across the world basically went outside their stadiums and protested. And they said, this is greedy uh, and they're boycotting the Super League. So that's, that was kind of going on simultaneously as when we were doing the podcast. So it was different breaking news. And really, it wasn't just those teams in those countries. The whole world, soccer, football world was very upset at what was transpiring. So, Dan, I, I think the best way that I explain this to non-soccer fans, like how did everything change? We had a Super League symposium. We brought in, you know, Ted Curtis. We brought in Stephen Bank. We brought in Katarina, who's a, a, probably the, one of the most high, perfect guests we've ever gotten. We wrote the book on EU sports law and breakaway leagues professor at Manchester uh, Law School. All of a sudden, we went from that, Dan, and today is recording this on Thursday. Super League is basically DOA, right, at this point. So how did that happen? I'm going to give you one scene. I'm going to paint the picture, which, you know, I'm not sure if you you followed closely. I know I was was monitoring every second on social media. The Chelsea fans were outside protesting outside of the stadium. 
and the Chelsea team bus pulled up. So Peter Cech, former uh, keeper with the Premier League, basically gets out of the bus and he's telling, and there's a great video, I posted it. He's telling fans, hey, calm down. It's not us. It's the team. It's above us. And the fans are getting into a standoff with basically the team bus and Peter Cech. And then within, at least when I saw it, minutes of that video kind of going viral, the next video goes viral. It's of Chelsea announcing they're withdrawing from the Super League. And then did it went from a protest and borderline a hostile, maybe a physical standoff to celebration and songs in the street from Chelsea. Uh, and then Manchester City backed out. And then within a couple hours, the entire Premier League backed out. And then a couple hours after that, AC Milan backed out, Inter Milan backed out, Atletico Madrid you know, backed out. As of today, Dan, the Super League of 12 teams is down to three teams. So before I get into the fun legalese, you as a, a non-soccer fan, what are your thoughts of all this chaos? Well, three doesn't even constitute a minion, uh, but in, in uh, what, what this scenario really underscores for me is um, think about the power that fans have in Europe. There's a significant amount of fan activism. They stared, the fans of these teams stared these billionaire owners down and forced them to back down. That would never happen in the United States. The owners of NFL teams, hockey teams, Major League Baseball, NBA teams, they have an outsized amount of power. And let's focus on the National Football League. There have been systemic changes made to the game of football. You want a 17th game, 17th game. Increasing the injury risks to players by adding a game, cutting out the retirement benefits and total and permanent disability benefits to a significant class of permanently disabled retired players. All these significant changes made and the fans uh, are you know, almost silent on this. And the, the owners in these US leagues pretty much have carte blanche to do whatever they want because the, the, the unions are, for the most part, with the exception of one or two, I won't name them, but the unions are not competently led, especially, I'll name the names, NFL in particular. Uh, there have been some really bad deals that have been struck. And contrast that to the situation in Europe where uh, you know John Henry had to issue this mea culpa videotaped apology to his fans. When would you ever see a team owner do that in the United States? If you so much as ever challenge uh, you know, uh, James Dolan on how he stewards the New York Knicks, he'll get you thrown out of Madison Square Garden. He'll suspend your season tickets. He'll bring consequences upon you. Uh, so the power dynamic uh, between the U.S. and Europe with respect to how the fans uh, have a seat at the table that they utterly lack in the United States, I think this is one of the best illustrations of that in action. I mean, the, the truth is, Dan, like, I don't know how to explain it. Like, you're 100% right. And first of all, your line about the minion it might be the funniest thing you've ever said on this podcast. And maybe maybe about one-fifth of our listeners will understand what you actually meant. Google it. Google it. I once belonged to a synagogue when I was a, a young, yeah, I was a, not even a teenager, Suburban Park Jewish Center, small congregation. They had trouble getting a minion. And I remember the rabbi, I think it was a minion, 10 people, eight people, I forgot what the rules are, but you need to have a minimum number. It's just like in, in the NBA, you have to field you know, a certain lineup. To have a, a, a proper minion in the Jewish religion, you need a minimum number. And more often than not, this synagogue came up short and they had to canvas the neighborhood. The rabbi would go from door to door uh, to try to recruit people to you know, comprise the minion. That's how bad it was in 1970s East Meadow, if you were a member of the Suburban Park Jewish Center where I was bar mitzvah. Okay, so <laughs> I digress. So the, the question that, I, that uh, has been asked, right, is, is where does the Super League go from here? You have three teams, Dan, and you make the joke, right, that there's, you know, you haven't been able to make a minion with it. 
Um, but it's not really that super if there's three teams. It's not. It's I don't know. It's almost like a like a mini league, right? So what what was the goal of these separate leagues? Like in, in the Super League, they were supposed to create a separate league, create a different stream of revenue. I don't think they thought the fans were going to have this much backlash. But here's damn where the lawyers kick in. There's two legal uh, premises that I wanted to cover, which is where I think we could go. I don't know if we could necessarily get there. There's a guy named Florentino Perez, who is I think he's the president at Real Madrid, but he's the guy that's getting on the news. And he's talking and talking and talking, defending the Super League. And even now, after the Super League is quote unquote dead, he's saying it's not that we're going to reorganize it. He said it a couple times that the Super League clubs had binding contracts and that bound them to stay within the league. So we kept saying that. And he goes, clubs are not allowed to leave. And he said that before any of these departures occurred. So since he said that, obviously nine teams left. So, you know, I made the joke. It's like, hey, he says I can't go, but we're going to go anyway. So where's, is there a lawsuit that's going to happen? So the Financial Times somehow got a hold of these actual contracts that the Super League team signed. And they, at least as far as their reporting was concerned, the only penalty that occurred from leaving the Super League at any point was only triggered in June of 2025. That's when gameplay started to occur. So what's, right now it's April of 2021. For about four years, there was no, at least according to the Financial Times, no downside and no financial, what they call the putative exit clause for leaving this the Super League. So I don't know what, the, someone's wrong here, right? Either Financial Times and their leaked documents are wrong. Clifford Chance, the big law firm drafted these. I, I, I believe that's them that drafted it. I know Clifford Chance was the one that did the, the trademarks. I imagine it's the same, same firm. But that said, right, we're not in 2025, so the punitive exit clauses don't apply. And now, like, okay, we're, we're sitting here. We have nine clubs that left, and you're talking about binding contracts. So, Dan, if it's truly binding, and there are three teams still in the Super League, I think if three teams leave, there's no lawsuit because there's no damages. But if three teams stay and they replace the nine with worse teams, do you think there could be a lawsuit? No, I think you've hit upon one of the most often overlooked elements of a breach of contract lawsuit, which is damages. I mean, how many, you know, for any experienced, you know, commercial litigator, oftentimes you focus on whether the contract is enforceable, statute of frauds, whether a breach occurred, damages uh, very rarely comes up as a legitimate you know, argument in a, a motion to dismiss or a motion for, uh, at least not on a motion to dismiss, maybe on a motion for summary judgment. Here you have the quintessential no damages lawsuit. And without damages, and even without that trigger for 2025, one wonders whether there'd be any cognizable damages other than incidental damages, uh, because the teams haven't left their respective situations yet. They're still in their leagues. Uh, there's been no significant catastrophic event or what I would consider consequential damages that have occurred. These are at best nominal or incidental damages. So I think this is a president of the Real Madrid who stood to be a key player in the Super League. And for obvious self-serving reasons, he wants to keep it together. But let's face it, if this were to go to a jury situation, and I don't, I don't know anything about European commercial law, whether this goes to, you know, you know uh, cast or, or is arbitrated, this is not a case that should ever be brought or would have a, a realistic chance of generating a, a significant monetary recovery for the league, which is years away from being you know, implemented, or for any of the member teams that choose to stay. So, I mean, I don't know where it goes, but it just strikes me as a, a, as a hollow thread at this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the same page as you. I mean, I mean the truth is, if, you're, if one of your incentives for staying in the Super League, quote unquote, is that you have... I don't know, the threat of $100 million litigation. Dan, as we, as we know as practicing attorneys, you can always threaten to sue someone and there's maybe some settlement that goes. And if this whole 
departure and defection was due to him because of a lack of funds. And right, if you want to buy Florentino Perez, soccer was dying and there was no money coming in. Why not? Why not threaten to file a lawsuit and let Chelsea pay you five five million euros? I don't know what the transfer. That, that, that's not the change. You know what the transfer fees are in European soccer and a couple of euros. How about let's say fifty million euros? How about that? Even that, you know, it's a lot of shackles there. But the top paid players, there's no salary cap in soccer, and it and, and the and the salaries that the top players earn in Europe, astronomical, astronomical. So I don't think any demands or any any risk of paying a six figure, seven figure, uh, or even an eight figure, uh, you know, damage award would make any of these major soccer powers reconsider their position. They are among the most financially powerful sports organizations in the world. So if they don't want to participate, there's very little you're going to be able to do about it, and you know, the, getting the pound of flesh is not going to really matter much to the teams that don't want to, you know, continue going forward with this league. So I think it's a great story about how, for me, the 48-hour, 24 window between the announcement of this, the fan revolt, our podcast, and then the retreat. So, you know, whether it's the fan revolt or conduct detrimental, that was the major contributing factor. I'll leave that to everyone in the audience to speculate about, but it really is a great example of the power of social media and the power of, you know, that fans could have in the debate around how the business of sports is constructed. As I mentioned earlier, that voice is rarely heard or effectively heard on our shores. The other point, just to close the loop, and then, uh, you know, I think it's just fun. Like, Dan, you say, well, what, what role did the podcast have involved? I mean, Dan, I said, sports law assemble. That's what the Avengers do. They assemble and they save the day. So the sports lawyers assemble. I know I was having, I had way too much fun on Twitter that day. But, you know, Dan, you ever, you ever see Braveheart? Of course. Of course. You One can take away movie. the Super League, but you can never take away our Super League Symposium Emergency Podcast. Just to put a pin in the in the, um, the Super League debate, the only the only other thing that I'm watching for this could be lawsuit, could be uh, you know there was going to sue the Premier the teams that left for the Premier League, whoever else they want to sue. Just to put a pin in it, there are looming sanctions and penalties that UEFA and and the domestic leagues, be it La Liga, Serie A, and the Premier League. I don't know if they're going to do it, but they're considering sanctions against the teams that tried to leave. It's trying to create some type of disincentive. Maybe it's a UEFA type penalty on international level, but. I'd be surprised if there were no ramifications for trying to defect. I know all the headlines said, hey, the Premier League returns with their tail between their legs. There will be ramifications here, but it's a matter of what. But you know, uh, as our, our mutual friend Andrew Brandt says, there will be lawyers. That said, Dan, let us move on to uh, topic number two today. That is what's going on in the sports betting world over in Florida. Now, uh, Dan, I think this podcast works because you like to help states legalize sports betting. And I like to bet on sports. So it's a little copacetic here. So tell us what's going on over in the, the sunny state of Florida. Yeah, I want to add one caveat to that, Dan. Sometimes I don't like to help states legalize sports betting. And I think Florida is the first example of a sports betting proposal that is uh, harmful to the interests of the industry. It's harmful to consumers and ultimately it's harmful to the state, and there's just one big winner if this deal goes through, and it's uh, the Seminole Tribe of Florida. So for context, let me back up a little bit. I mean, I mean not everybody is based in the state of Florida, but since uh, the United States Supreme Court overturned uh, the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, 
We've gone from one state that had single game sports wagering being legal, which was Nevada, and now we're up to 28. And uh, you, you know the, the 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 momentum has just been uh, you know pretty swift. States around the country have sports betting bills on the drawing board. Many of them have already passed into law. But the three most populous states, California number one, Texas number two, Florida number three, representing nearly one quarter of the population of the United States. There's no sport, there's no legal sports betting at all in either of those three states. So Florida represents one of the three crown jewels of the US sports betting industry. And uh, for the last three years, the state legislature and the governor and the Seminole tribes have been trying to come up with a framework that can pass muster both legally with the tribes and with the legislature and the governor. It's been a very complicated process because of all the competing interests. In a number of states where you've had legal sports betting, uh, stakeholders have largely been on board with the proposal. In Florida, you have on the one side, the Seminole tribe of Florida, which is the largest, most profitable Indian gaming tribe in the United States. They dominate the Florida gambling landscape because of a, uh, a gaming compact that the tribe had entered into with the state of Florida 10 years ago, which has guaranteed the state in excess of $300 million annually. The state was really dependent upon that cash flow. Uh, that amount of money generates more revenue than any other form of gambling in, in, in Florida. So a couple of years ago, a federal court judge declared the state to be in breach of that agreement by allowing these uh, house bank card games to be played at paramutual facilities. And fast forward, the tribe have, have, have suspended their payments and the state has been without these revenue sharing payments for, for much of the last two years. So in order to, to bring sports betting within the state of Florida, the tribes or the Seminole tribe of Florida has sort of the, the leverage in negotiating because the state is very interested in restoring those forfeited revenue payments and bringing them back into the fold. So it gives the tribe a lot to say about how new forms of gambling are going to be operated in the United States. And tonight, the, uh, the, it, the, the news, the reports have, have you know, surfaced on the Miami Herald and a number of other outlets that Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, has brokered a deal to bring sports betting to the state of Florida through an amendment to the Seminole, through a new compact agreement with the Seminole Tribe of Florida. And under that agreement, sports betting is going to be largely under the control of the Seminole Tribe. And what do I mean by under the control? That it, it will be a hub and spoke system in which all sports betting will be controlled by the Seminole Tribe. It will allow uh, Florida's paramutual facilities, meaning the racetracks, the poker rooms, the highlight facilities, the shuttered dog tracks, and even professional sports venues to participate in mobile in, in, in retail sports betting and mobile sports betting, but all of it will have to be funneled through tribal servers located at the Seminole Tribes uh, casinos in Tampa and Hollywood. So this entire deal is set up where the Seminole Tribe of Florida is at the top of the pyramid, the paramutual racetrack operators are at the bottom of the pyramid along with the sports teams. And they're only going to be, there's only going to be one, uh, I think there are only going to be two mobile operators in the state of Florida. The tribe will be able to operate their own mobile skin through Hard Rock Digital. And they'll also be able to partner with up to one other mobile sports betting operator. So potentially the entire state could end up being served 
by only two mobile sports betting operators. And mind you, Florida is the third largest population in the country, population size of even greater than New York State and New York will have no fewer than four mobile operators. Florida is shaping up to be even more restrictive than New York. So what's the problem in that? I mean, there are a number of problems in terms of creating a competitive market. The consumers are gonna have fewer choices. The revenue split between the tribes and the paramutuals for the betting that's even allowed at the racetracks, it's gonna be 60-40 or close to 50-50, meaning, uh, meaning that the, every dollar of revenue that the Florida paramutual operators make at least 50 cents of that or close to 50 cents of that is gonna go into the pocket of the Seminole tribe. So, so it creates an unlevel playing field between the tribe and Florida's more than 30 paramutual operators which collectively employ thousands of people that really do depend on bringing a new source of gambling into the fold in order to be able to keep their doors open, in order to be able to keep jobs, create new jobs. And this situation creates a gross disparity between a, between a tribe that is literally prints money and a paramutual industry that's struggling to survive. And then layered on top of that, this deal I think can really can fall apart legally because there are two issues or two potential legal points of entry here. Indian tribes are regulated by the federal government under a federal law known as the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Sports betting is a form of class three gaming under this federal law known as IGRA. And as a form of class three gaming, the tribe has to enter into a, the tribe and the state have to enter into a contract or a compact to govern this sort of gaming. And before I turn it back to you, Daniel, one of the real complicating factors here is that IGRA only applies to gambling that takes place on Indian lands, meaning that mobile sports betting, internet-based sports betting, none of it is allowable under IGRA. So I'm concerned and not, not more than concerned, I'm of the opinion that any deal which allows for off-reservation gambling, meaning mobile sports wagering, remote sports wagering, that is done through an amended compact, will never be approved by the federal government and will be subject to a, to a legal challenge. Let me ask you this, because I, again, I'm just, I'm, uh, there's a lot of things that you just said that I, I wish I understood. I don't understand. It's hard to give a tutorial. It's hard to like drill it all down in 20 seconds. It's, it's one of those things that you have to layer in over a, uh -huh. over a couple of weeks, but. So, but I, I guess the gist of, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. It sounds like the gist is, if you, if you allow this particular law to be passed in Florida, it's going to do more harm than good because it might get passed, but then it's going to hang the whole business up longer because it might get overturned at a later point. Is that my getting the gist of it? Uh, well, that, that's part of it. I wouldn't say so much as overturned, but any, any deal that involves Indian tribes are governed by a federal law, meaning that it's not just the state that has to okay it, but the federal government has to sign off on any type of class three gaming that's included in a compact. This federal law, IGRA, creates three different classifications for gambling. Class one is basically low stakes social games, meaning that the tribes can do it themselves. There's no state or federal oversight. Class two is bingo and, and, and non-house bank card games. For that, the tribes pretty much have control over that with minimal federal oversight. But anything else that's class three involves casino gambling, slot machines, poker, blackjack, horse race betting, high lie, dog racing, and sports betting. All of those categories of games have to be included in a compact between the state of between the state and the tribe 
And then the federal government, the US Secretary of the Interior has to approve it before it can be implemented. And there's a long line of federal case law and federal regulatory agency opinions that have, that have held that internet sports betting from gamblers located outside of the, the tribal reservation, all of that gambling falls outside the scope of IGRA. So in a nutshell, uh, any type of uh, uh, compact that includes mobile sports wagering is uncompactable, meaning the federal government will never approve it, barring a sudden or dramatic change in policy. And there could be that change in policy because the new secretary of the U.S. Interior is a, uh, is a Native American. And it's possible that uh, she could approve a compact that includes mobile betting, but that would represent a dramatic shift away from how IGRA has historically been interpreted as applying only to gaming on Indian lands. And case after case after case has concluded that mobile sports wagering falls outside the scope of IGRA, meaning that you can't do a compact for mobile sports betting. And that's precisely how the governor of Florida is structuring this deal. So I think, I think not only could it be uh, uh, not approved by the federal government, but even if the government approves it, it could land in quarters as a result of a legal challenge. And then of course, there's the related issue of whether sports betting passes muster under the state constitution. So this could set up basically a duo of legal battles on the state level and the federal level. Interesting, okay. Besides being a bad deal, besides being a terrible deal for the state. Well, Dan, you, you've got me to a place that I'm, I'm comfortable with. So I have been on a soapbox, Dan, and you can, you can, we can disagree on this. And I, and I, I like that you corrected me. Um, I, I've always been of the, the thought process, Dan, that when states try to legalize sports betting, that it is good for your business. But I think what you were telling me is that some deals for sports betting are actually bad for your business. So if I can explain it this way, I've gone on my soapbox and I've said, hey, these states just need to figure out how to legalize sports betting and just get it done as soon as possible because there's revenue to be made and money to be made. What you're saying is you don't want to take from a, you don't want to take the red pill necessarily because that might hang up sports betting for maybe months, if not years. You're better off just taking a couple extra months and making it sure it's done the right way is what, is what I'm hearing you say. In short, I subscribe to the view that no deal is better than a bad deal. And one of the recent trends that I'm seeing in um, sports betting legislation in states like Connecticut, New York, California, and now Florida, is that those structures, some of them aren't, aren't implemented or even legal yet, but they're headed towards a monopolistic situation where in Connecticut, sports betting is going to be the prerogative of two tribes and, and, and the state lottery. In California, the tribes are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're advancing a, a ballot question for the November 2021 and November 2022 election in which they will have a quasi-monopoly over, over sports betting only on the ground. There'll be no mobile betting. New York recently passed legislation that would guarantee as few as four operators in the state. And now in Florida, we're looking at a situation where instead of having equal access and parity among operators, the Seminole tribe will control everything. And every dollar of revenue from any operator, half of it will go into the tribe's pocket and they will control mobile sports betting throughout the state under the fiction, under the fiction of a computer server being located on a tribal casino. And uh, the problem is that the state, I think, has been, re re been reacting or, or acquiescing to fear tactics that the only way to legalize sports betting in Florida is to do it through the, the, the tribal gaming compact. 
because there's a school of thought that under the state constitution, sports betting legalization or any, any law that authorizes sports betting outside of tribal land would be attacked on constitutional grounds because the Florida constitution now has a prohibition against casino gambling and that the only way under the state constitution to authorize casino gambling is through a, a citizen-led ballot measure, which means private individuals would have to gather signatures, bypass the legislature, raise tens of millions of dollars to put on a statewide you know, voter referendum. And there's this school of thought that sports wagering is a form of casino gambling. And that if you try to legalize it through the normal means, uh, it would violate the state constitution. And, and the constitution has a carve out for compacts, meaning that you can do casino gambling as long as it's on a tribal reservation. So what would be, what would be unconstitutional if we're done on non-tribal land is permissible so long as it's on tribal land. And that's why the state of Florida has been uh, focusing on doing sports betting uh, through the vehicle of an amended tribal gaming compact. But as I've written and as I've argued uh, ad nauseum, sports betting is not casino gambling under the Florida constitutional definition of casino gambling. The, the state constitution has a very confined and narrow definition of what constitutes casino gambling. It basically has to be the type of gambling that's typically found in a casino as of the date of this constitutional amendment, which dates back to 2018. And at that time, only a handful of states had sports books and casinos. The vast majority did not have them at all. And I've always viewed that casino gambling and sports betting are different categories of gambling. And if I'm right, and I know I'm right, I think the state, the state is being pressured or at least feeling the, the, the legal compunction to only operate sports betting through a tribal compact amendment, when in reality, the state could authorize sports betting any way they want, even outside of the tribal compacting process without running afoul of the state constitution. And I think if lawmakers and policymakers have a better understanding of the nuances of that, uh, I, I think there would be less appetite to cave into the Seminole tribe. I mean, I, I find this stuff very fascinating. I find any issues, Dan, uh, on the sports betting front. Don't, don't, don't think it's, I missed this. You had a Nebraska sports betting update that I saw. We'll cover it. I'm, we'll find a way to, to mix in some Nebraska stuff here, but I saw that. Any opportunity, Dan, any opportunity I have to name drop a Springsteen album, I'll definitely take advantage of Nebraska, which includes the classic Atlantic City, as well as the, the song Reason to Believe. And I have every reason to believe that this Florida sports betting deal, if it's enacted into law, will not pass muster under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, would violate that law and could set back the process or set back the conversation on sports betting by potentially as much as a year, two years, three years, while this issue is potentially tied up in court and under the federal approval process. So as I go back to you and, and, and say that no deal is better than a bad deal, and I'd, ra I'd rather do things that create a level playing field. It's very important because there are so many industries, so many different gaming stakeholders within Florida. You've got dog tracks, race tracks, poker rooms, high life facilities. Now you have professional sports teams and leagues that want in on sports betting. I think it's imperative that you create a level playing field in which everyone and the online gaming companies, DraftKings, FanDuel, 
Barstool, Bet365. You want to create an environment where there's competition and competition will breed innovation as well as create the largest possible you know, player database and the highest possible revenues for the state. You leave consumers in Florida with one or two options. A great deal of them will remain betting on offshore sites and might even you know, bet in other states. So two skins is not going to get the job done and will probably fail or fail to pass muster under both federal law and potentially under state law. The Florida sports betting data is pro debate is probably the most intensely legal conversation of all the states that have legalized sports betting because of IGRA and because of the state constitution. Lawsuits, that is your signal. If you're not paying attention to Professor Wallach, write about that topic. Dan will be your best friend. While we're talking about state and federal law with Florida, just, just quickly, I think it's important for, for those that are following this. You know, every time we talk about sports betting, we talk about name, image, and likeness because it's two sports-specific issues that are going through the legislature. And we're talking about the states. We're looking at the federal level. From friend of the podcast, Darren Heider, here's where we stand as of today. Uh, what's the idea? The 22nd, okay? I'm going to read off the states. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. 11 states with name, image, and likeness laws that allow athletes to get compensated for their name, image, and likeness um, within their state to play uh, college sports. So I'm going to read them out. Uh, these first four that I'm going to give you, those NIL laws become effective uh, as of July 1st. So that special fancy date that we were talking about with, uh, with Rich, Rich, uh, Rich Enzor and with Greg Clifton and with Warren Zola. At the time, we were saying Florida was the only state that was going to enact NIL July 1st. That number has now come to four. Florida, New Mexico, Mississippi, and now Alabama are the four states that have name, image, and likeness that are coming into effect on July 1st. After that, Nebraska, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Michigan, New Jersey, Arizona. So, yeah, the, the more states that uh, make, obviously, that are effective July 1st, the more pressure on the NCA. Um, and the more states that are just, you know, legalizing name, image, and likeness, the more pressure on the NCA. Darren is on top of the NCA stuff. He, he noted we've been talking about a potential lawsuit between the NCA and these various states that are going to legalize NIL on July 1st. There's some rumblings. I think there was an interview done with Mark Emmert uh, where Emmert says that they, you know, they're not necessarily going to go after those states. So I don't know. It's, it's either, either way, whether they sue Florida, they sue New Mexico, Mississippi, Alabama, or they don't, there's going to be chaos one way there. There's either chaos in the courtrooms or there's chaos in the transfer portal because all these 1,000 plus athletes that are hanging in the transfer portal that, you know, you're kidding yourself if you don't think they're going to go to those four states absent some injunction. Um, Dan, thoughts on the NIL stuff? Well, I mean, it's kind of outside, you know, I, I've had like such limited bandwidth. I've been focused this legislative session on almost everything sports betting related. And I'm living in Siberia. What do I care about in Alabama NIL uh, law? It's been very difficult for me to stay on top of it, but I think the momentum is growing. And, and what was done in Florida and California has basically been sweeping across the nation. I think this is a bipartisan you know, issue that uh, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle can, can get behind. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it's very surprising to me at all. And um, I, th I think this could just sort of interplay as, as we've discussed on some of our prior podcasts with the looming Supreme Court opinion that's going to come out of the collegiate, you know, sports amateurism issue. So this is really the, the sort of the heyday for collegiate sports law in terms of, you know, groundbreaking legal developments. But I've been focused so much on sports betting. I haven't been able to get myself out of that zone. But, you know, hopefully the legislative sessions will end soon and I'll be able to pivot back to some of these stories. But, man, this deal with Florida today, that's you're talking about a colossal industry that will in that one state alone will greatly outpace every dollar 
of name, image, and likeness revenue created in all the states combined. That's how big sports betting is in a state like Florida. Dan, I'm not going to, I guess, is Florida your home state? We're going to call it Florida or we're going to call it Nova Sabir's? You know what? Uh, it, uh, Florida is not my home state. Florida is a way station, uh, my residence. My home is New York, Daniel. I grew up on the, the main streets of East Meadow, New York, in Nassau County, Long Island. No, it's not, Dan. How do I send you some mail in New York? Tell me, do you have an address there? You do not, Dan. Your home state is Florida. You can have to deal with that. Okay, so Dan, that brings us to our, our we'll say our fourth topic, because I snuck in some NIL there. So he, here's the, the biggest story. You know, obviously we're covering it third, but it's, it's ever-present. On um, any type of sports, uh, you know, level, there's national news. Every every time Deshaun Watson, uh, you have Adam Shepard tweeting it. It's it's become a story that is kind of all consumed sports fans and, and lawyers. And it's made lawyers in high demand to cover this story. So since we last covered this, there have been three developments that I wanted to cover relatively quick, and then and then we'll, we'll, get, we'll send the show home. The first was that the order came down for everybody to uh, for these 22 women to basically either uh, to refile their claims with their names attached to it. So that was Harden's big strategy. He said, hey, under uh, you know Texas law, there are very few exceptions to when you can just have an anonymous complaint. And this does not fall into one of them. So you have to refile. And those that don't refile, he's going to move to dismiss. So I don't know if Harden expected this, but I, I think the numbers 20 of uh, 20 of 22 women came through and filed their, uh, their, their complaints with their names attached. I know one was dismissed, so I think there's one floating out there, but majority, almost all the women came forward and they put their names out. So um, just moving forward, right? That's the hard part, right? Putting your name to it in a complaint is, is very tough. So I think these women are now in it for the long run. I don't think Harden expected 20 to stay in it. Now, another development, um, there was a motion, I don't know if it was done on motion or if it was done just by the court. All remaining civil cases were combined, watch this thing, because I know there was some uh, miscommunication on sports law Twitter, they were combined for pre-trial discovery only. So all depositions, all discovery, all, all motion practice, everything pre-trial, they're going to be with the same judge. Now, when you get to the trial phase, they're each going to be given back to their respective judges. And now this is where it's very important. And I don't, and, and I tried to make this point in a couple of places, just so everyone's clear. The trials are not, it's not going to be like a class action lawsuit, right? It's not going to be, you know, did Watson win the one case or lose that case? Each of these cases, they deal with a different set of facts, a different set of dates, a different set of parties that all have to be tried if you get to the trial phase, which I, I, I do think we probably get there sort of some settlement, all have to be tried individually. And in the Harris County Courthouse, what they would do is they put Watson in one courtroom and they, you know, set the schedule out, right? How long do you need to ask the attorneys, how long do you need for the trial? This is going to be maybe months, if not a year down the road. And they'd say, yeah, I probably need two, two and a half weeks to put this trial on multiply two and a half weeks out times 20 trials, you could be looking at a year's work legitimately, a, a trials over the course of a single year of the, of the entire calendar. So I want people to know that this is not consolidated purpose of a joint trial. This is not a class action lawsuit. These are individual lawsuits that just happen to have the same lawyer. So Dan. Dan, how do you consolidate even for purposes of discovery? These are all separate incidents. The only thing in common is that there was one was a massage therapist and the other was Deshaun Watson. There's they don't they don't share us a, a common nucleus of operative facts. They are simply like a bunch of different lawsuits. I mean, where's the common thread to justify consolidation? Consolidated with the same judge. How about that? I mean, I, I probably phrase it. Well, that's okay, but they're not related cases. They're not, but, I, but it makes sense. It, but it, it makes sense that the same judge right. just for coordinating right. the scheduling. 
I misspoke, but I think in terms of evidentiary and, and those issues to have one judge on top of all of this, I think it does make it a lot easier for purposes of the case. You have similar similar rulings, similar, similar deposition conduct. I think that was the, the point. These are not these are not quote unquote consolidated for any you know any real purpose. You have to, you have to file everything separately. Um, but the same judge, uh, and I'll pull up her name at some point, um, is going to be covering uh, all of those particular cases. How many plaintiffs are there, Dan? How many separate lawsuits? There was 22 was the max number. I believe there are 20 that are remaining. The judge that is in charge, Dan, the Honorable Revia Sultan Collier. So that's at the Harris County Civil Courthouse. I looked it up, Dan. Yeah. Harris County Courthouse is a massive building. It is very tall. That is not like courthouses over where I'm from in Westchester County. Yeah, it's a great name for courthouse, Harris County Courthouse. You know, the numbers seem daunting for Deshaun Watson, but I'll look at it through a different, you know, sort of a different lens. 20, you have 20 cases that really, even though they operate under different factual scenarios, if you have one bad plaintiff, one bad apple, somebody who collapses and, and whose story doesn't check out, who under cross-examination during a deposition does a terrible job, that could, that could poison the well for all the other plaintiffs. So there's a lot, you know, when you bring so many different cases and the public identifies them all as connected and one of them becomes, you know, just a, a terrible plaintiff in terms of how she, how she presents herself during a deposition, that could have a, that could have a, a sort of a catalyzing effect on the remaining cases. But for Deshaun Watson, this is really daunting. Uh, these are civil cases and all this discovery I, I mean, this this is never going to see the light of a day in trial. It will get settled at some point. I don't know about that. The question for me, and you might be right, but the question for me is if this gets to a deposition and, you know, these women are deposed and, and they're going to participate with, I'm sure they're going to cooperate with NFL investigators. This is eventually, and this is already at the doorstep of, of NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, but I mean, he's suspended. Antonio Brown, before there was so much as a single deposition taken in his civil case, and by the way, that civil case settled this week. Tell you that. Uh, if, if you were to take, if you were to go even further in these spate of civil lawsuits with Deshaun Watson and, and have deposition discovery, that could that could theoretically give the commissioner more than enough ammunition uh, to suspend Watson, certainly to place him on the, uh, on, on the you know, leave with pay list, which he could probably place him on right now where NFL games to be played next week or next month. If you go forward in the calendar and it's now August or early September, I don't think Watson's playing a game. But right now, the, the calendar is on Watson's side. He's four or five months away from his first NFL regular season game. But if this were much closer, I don't think he's going out there. He's not, I'll put a bold statement out there. I don't think he's playing week one. I don't, I don't know if he's playing week five. They're, these, this is not going to get wrapped up. And Dan, just, just so people are, are mindful, I, I'm happy you Antonio Brown. He was on my list. Antonio Brown's case got settled because, you know, it, it'd been kicking around a lot. I don't, we don't know if there was a monetary settlement attached to it, but it's one case. And you know how long it took to settle that one case, Dan? It took about a year, more than a year and a half to settle one case. Now, Watson's got 20 of them. So you have to have all 20 plus women say, I'm okay selling this case. I'm okay letting this guy off the hook in the court of public opinion. And right now for Brown, and I, and I think just, just, just go with me for a second. Part of the reason that I think Brown's case got settled, truthfully, he had his suspension. He basically missed a year of football because of this whole, you know, insanity. So, you know, if, if Brittany Taylor's, uh, that's, that's the plaintiff in, in, you know, Brown's case, wanted to get her pint of blood and, and you know, throw him through the coals and make sure he felt it and set an example out of him. Brown, his career was was objectively hurt from this whole evaluation. So maybe 
Taylor looks at herself, she goes, you know what? Brown's paid in the court of public opinion. Brown got hit and, you know, whatever else. The problem with Watson, while we can't necessarily draw the same comparison, Watson hasn't had his, his ounce of blood taken from him, whatever you want to call it. Watson still really hasn't had any type of punishment. So I don't think these women who, who if you believe Tony Busby, which I know we don't always believe him half the time, this is about making an example out of Deshaun Watson. The example has not been set yet, and I can't see these cases being settled prior to the example. Well, I mean, I think with, with the sheer number of cases, the the possibility of a global settlement may be much stronger or much higher than you would otherwise think because they're all represented by the same attorney. So it's not as if it's not as if Watson's legal team and Rusty Harden and, and, and Watson now. are going to negotiate for plaintiff now. by plaintiff by plaintiff. What was it? I'm saying for now, it wouldn't be the first time and yeah. certainly wouldn't be the last that somebody switched attorneys in the middle of the case. Busby's done a lot of odd things in this case, which if I was if he was my attorney, I would be I'd be looking looking over his shoulder. You know, I don't I don't think Busby has done such yeah. a great job with this. But, but, but his fees are going to be paid as a sort of on a contingent fee basis. And he'll get probably under his uh, under his uh, fee agreements, like a third or somewhere thereabout of, of, of you know, the, the settlement value settlement or or monetary judgment. So his best this is for him. This is like a class action. He's going to aggregate all these individual claims and negotiate as if it were a class action. Uh, with Watson's legal team in order to extract a multi-million dollar, you know, payment, maybe $10 million, in which case Busby walks away with uh, $3,333,000 for never having taken a deposition, never having gone to trial, never having advanced beyond, you know, the the, sort of the pleading. So I think think a guy like him, while he loves the limelight, I think this is potentially for him more of a score than it is immersing the remainder of his legal career and handling these claims against Deshaun Watson, because Ideally, I think he's looking for an exit strategy. And right now, I think he's positioning these cases uh, very favorably to secure a seven-figure or even an eight-figure settlement. So that's where I see it going. And not so fast on Antonio Brown. He was suspended or he faced NFL discipline to date only for, I think, the moving company uh, civil lawsuit. He is yet to face formal discipline. Uh, for the uh, you know for for the allegations concerning the, the the sexual assault with Brittany Taylor, so the NFL could potentially revisit or visit a second round of discipline on Antonio on Antonio Brown just for this case because he was never disciplined for these civil allegations. So I think the door is still open for the NFL to, to discipline Brown. I think but I think he was really disciplined in part for these series of allegations. He was on the pay with leave list an eight-game suspension under the domestic violence and the personal conduct policy. I think first offense would probably be six games. So when you look at the penalty that he served, regardless of to which which case you allocate it to, I think he has served the equivalent of a full suspension for the first incident of domestic violence. So I would expect the NFL to walk away from this, but the possibility exists that the NFL will continue to go after Antonio Brown and he's not out of the woods yet. And that would be a really sad thing given uh, his age, the likelihood that he's down to his last year or two in his professional career. And I think he's already I think he's already paid his pound of flesh in terms of the number of games he's already missed for a variety of the different cases. So, I mean, it's you and I could go back and forth this whole day. I think it's I think it's interesting. We'll see what, what comes of it. The last part I wanted to update people on, which is it. No, if you're following the legalese of this, it's a substantive development. Um, you know, obviously we have 20, compl- 20 plus complaints that were filed. Anyone that's taken any, uh, knows anything about litigation or civil or any of that fun stuff, 
there's got to be an answer that's filed. And the answer was filed this past week by Rusty Hardin. The main thing you need to know which, with any answer, and you know, 95% of answers that I file, it's a general denial of everything. You put in some colorful language, you want the court to understand the narrative. But here's what you need to know. This is, I'll, I'll distill it for you. This is Rusty Hardin's quote, which is, um, I don't know, I mean, it maybe just the hand that Rusty Hardin has dealt, but he goes, quote, the answer to the question of whether we are saying that all 22 plaintiffs are lying about the allegations of sexual misconduct by Mr. Watson is a resounding yes. So here's Hardin's strategy. He's laid it out on a silver platter. Everyone is lying. All 22 women are lying. They're, nothing they are saying is true. It is all a fabrication. So that yeah, I'm not saying it. That's Rusty Hardin's direct quote. It's not from it's not from the, uh, the answer. It's directly from uh, Rusty Hardin's mouth. So I'm going to give you one other thing that I that I pulled. And friend of the show, um, Mike Meltzer, Houston-based attorney, uh, and he's you know obviously has his his radio show. He pulled this from uh, the filing. There's one exhibit that Deshaun Watson filed with his answer, and it was a text message between Watson and one of his alleged accusers. I'm going to read this verbatim, Dan. I have no idea. I have no idea why only one of these was provided. If you have 20 of them, fine. I, I'm in support of it. You have one, it doesn't do much. It raises a lot of questions. So this is from Deshaun Watson. Okay, Had one of my PTs look it up and see where I've been sore and needed treatment. And the uh, person on the other end gives kind of like a, an okay emoji, like a little three fingers up. Watson then responds, but not sure that's a comfortable area to get to with you. And then the person responds, why you say that with a kind of like puzzled face. Okay, Watson is, this, is, this will give you a little bit of a breadcrumb what I think Hardin is going to attempt to do. I would never have recommended this, but this is, you, this is the only way to discern from this text, this text in this exhibit. Watson's going to argue that there, at least from what my vantage point is, that there was a legitimate therapeutic reason for any of these odd massage requests that he made. He's attaching, and you can, and I have the post up obviously on Instagram and Twitter, but he's putting a, a, a screenshot of a message that he allegedly had with a physical therapist and saying, hey, this is clinically allowed, so I'm going to do this. I Dan, and you can tell me I'm crazy. On the defense of these cases, you don't need to say a single word. You don't need to say anything. You can poke holes in the plaintiff's case because it's their burden of proof. To give your case, your defense in a silver platter and to make this the defense, hey, these were all clinically and therapeutically uh, allowed and PTs like them, I think is an insane, insane maneuver. And it doesn't really leave Watson that many places to go. I don't know, Texas may have some very weird uh, affirmative defenses that are recognized under state law, but I, I agree with you. But the burden that civil plaintiffs face is considerably lower than the burden that a prosecutor would face, because as you know, in a civil case, uh, the burden of proof for the plaintiffs is only a preponderance of the evidence, which means that it's more likely than not that you know the allegations that you've advanced you know are true. Uh, so staying silent in the face of this low burden of proof, I think the jury is going to expect to hear from Deshaun Watson. And again, I, I don't think this is ever going to play out before a jury because he'll write that check for, you know, $10 million. You're going to write, 20, quiet all write, these 20, You're gonna write 20 of those checks? No, global, global. Ten, oh. This is not, this is not a one, this is not a nine figure case, Dan. This is uh, when, when you when you think about the payday on a per plaintiff basis, when there's been no rape or there's been no violent sexual assault, I mean, really, you value each case at, at, at more than a half a million dollars? You're asking me? Be beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The, the amount of money that Budsby can get is whatever Watson will pay. 
So there is no, as, as far as I'm aware in this case, well, damages are not tangible, right? There's no loss of earnings. There's nothing like well, that. So it's whatever, whatever Watts is going to pay. I think what he what he's willing to pay and what he should pay, I think, is going to bear a reasonable relationship to what he stands to lose in the way of his NFL salary and the NFL guaranteed contract. Should he be placed on any kind of a, a, a formal discipline where he loses his game pay? So besides the value of the underlying cases and we could debate and I don't I don't think, you know, that this is a a, a nine figure case or even a mid eight figure case, but he may be willing to pay a premium to quiet all these plaintiffs and to pretty much guarantee their, by their silence and keep the NFL from being in a position to discover any information from any of these you know, women directly. So he has millions of reasons to pony up money to buy their silence, irrespective of the merits of the case. Now, I'm gonna conclude with this. This is the million dollar question, which I, Dan, I got the call, probably the biggest call I've gotten for a quote. I got a call from USA Today to give a quote on the Watson case. And he asked me a really interesting question. My quote didn't make it into uh, somebody took someone else's quote. So this is what. Watson How dare they? How they, dare he? They took some good ones. They took a, they took a good one of mine. But I wanted to make this. We could do this here, and then and then we'll put this in the books. Now listen, I'm only repeating what what Harden and Watson's camp is saying. Watson is saying that the acts that were there were some acts that were consensual that were being done, right? And Watson is saying that, hey, these were legitimate massages, but there were some consensual sexual acts that occurred during the course of these massages. But someone really smart, I didn't catch it at first, someone really smart who was a non-lawyer on Twitter basically said, Dan, isn't, isn't that like, you know, prostitution that he's paying for services, um, he's paying people for, for mis massages and he's not really getting massages, he's getting something else. And I'm like, it's not a, not a bad point. Like. As far as I'm aware, prostitution is not legal across the state of Texas in these various jurisdictions that Watson is in. There's a word, this is, this is where I'm getting to. I'm not getting to legalization of or, you know, whether prostitution was legal or it's not legal. My question is, let's say these cases all get settled and what is out there that Watson has admitted in that basically he spoke to a lot of masseuses, contradicted via Instagram or wherever else, and there were a lot of them that he you know, had some form of consensual relationships with and, and paid for them. Is that in and of itself, something that is suspendable in the eyes of the shield. I don't know the answer to that. Well, I have an answer. You know what the going rate for prostitution or, or, or uh, soliciting a prostitute is in the NFL? It's zero games. C-E-G, Robert Kraft. <laughs> yeah, but he's not a player. He's not playing games. Every member of the NFL, owners, uh, coaches, management, everyone is covered and subject to the conduct detrimental, ding, 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 policy, whether it's under a standard player contract, the CBA, busted, the NFL bylaws, the NFL constitution. Wait, hear me out. If someone got busted for, and I don't know the answer to this, and maybe you do, someone got busted for an illegal prostitution ring and they had a bunch of prostitutes and, you know, it's clearly against state law, you don't think they would get a single game of punishment? A player. Of course they would. I'm, I'm joking because Robert Kraft joking, was, was pretty was, was Robert Kraft was caught with his proverbial, you know, pants down and there was nothing proverbial about it. But he never served a game, obviously. He's the obviously A, he's the owner, but B, he fought that on the technical charges and got the evidence knocked out. So that's right. And that's right. That's right. The case fell apart without a key piece of evidence. But uh, you know, what is he doing Ryan there? And, it was like the Ryan Braun defense once upon a time when he got busted for steroids. It wasn't actually he didn't say he didn't commit the crime, he just fought the evidentiary issues before we got there. So mm -hmm. yeah. and that's absolutely right. But I'm 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 joking. You, you know, zero games for Robert Kraft, any oh, NFL oh, player who did 
But this is, so I, but I want your real answer in this because I don't know the answer. Watson, if he settles all the cases, he sells them for a couple million, whatever he settles them for, but he's admitted to basically using it, we'll say a pay for play scheme, right? Do you think he still faces some type of suspension? Yeah, probably under the personal conduct probably. policy, but it, probably. it is a, it is a, um, in terms of degrees, it probably falls lower on the continuum than an alleged sexual assault. Agreed. But I still one is consented to, the other is not consented to, but it's still a violation and he still probably serves yeah. a suspension, but he's looking at less uh, less time. Yeah, I think he's past the point of no return. I think he's getting suspended no matter which way, either under this alleged prostitution that he's doing, either under the just the bed for the shield, or if he loses any one of these 20 cases that goes to trial, I think his suspension is, is almost a virtual certainty. Dan, I'll put it in sports betting terms. How about this? Minus... 590. How about that? Those are pretty good odds. My credo for the for, for being in this business, I don't I don't bet on I haven't bet since 1978 Portland Trailblazers against the uh, Warriors and I'll I'll stick to that. My only level of participation is NCAA uh, bracket uh, bracket pools, uh, but I would say that Deshaun Watson is barring some miracle headed to some form of discipline uh, from the NFL. Yes. So um, with that said, Dan, I know it is late in over in Novosibirsk, Russia. So um, with that said, we will put this uh, episode in the books. As always, Dan Wallach is on social media at Wallach Legal. Myself, Dan Lust, I'm at Sports Law Lust. And the show is at Con Detrimental, again, um, on TikTok at Sports Law. I guess so. we'll put this one in the books. The Super League Symposium is available. I implore all of you to check that out. It will go down as a relic in sports law history. Yeah, and for Dan and myself, uh, we will see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.